Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. man sitting opposite me took one look when he came in the studio and said, my God, look out at that. And I don't think, Chris Luke... I don't think you've ever sat opposite me in the studio, even though we've probably talked to each other dozens of times. That's I don't think right, PJ. No, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for the for the invitation. Yeah, it's it's something that I, I thought that we'd we'd have to talk about when I was reading your book for the second time. Uh, generally when one reads a book for for the radio, you kind of fly through it and then you read it more in depth the second time. And then I noticed you're 40 years a doctor this month, Chris. Congratulations. Thank you, PJ. That's extremely kind and extremely worrying. <laughs> you graduated from UCD in June 82. That's right. Happy days. Yeah. Before the, uh, the, war, the one and two uh, suddenly struck me, we had a lovely holiday in the island of Giglio, which was famous for the, the Costa Concordia crash uh, you know, recent, more recently. But we, we stayed, a gang of medical students, final meds, after our exams, we stayed in a fantastic pizza, pizzeria, above a pizzeria with the most wonderful pizzas. And we spent a week diving into the sparkling waters of the Mediterranean off Giglio, a real paradise. And then, of course, the following Monday, we were catapulted into the reality of uh, working every second night and working 100 hours a week. It was some shock to the system, I tell you that. Yeah. And you were did your tour of the various hospitals, as one does when you're a newly qualified doctor, and then you went off to the UK, spent 14 years there in Scotland and in Liverpool. Um, why emergency medicine, Chris, when, as a young graduate, you have... Every possibility in front of you. You can focus on anything you want at that point in your career. Why emergency medicine? Well, they say, PJ, that uh, emergency physicians are those those mad medics uh, with very short attention spans who work in emergency departments uh, tend, to, tend to just love the diversity. They love the action, the activity. They love fixing things and then moving on to the next thing. And, of course, our our ancestors, as, as to where, were literally, you know, mi- missionary medics and military medics. In other words, in the 1960s, when the specialty of accident and emergency medicine was first established, the first consultants in the specialty were retiring missionary medics coming back from Africa and India uh, and military medics who were retired, of course, as you, as you know, at about, you know, 50, 55. Mm. So they were brought in 
uh, back in the 60s to sort of supervise what was then the back door of most uh, hospitals, particularly the charitable hospital, to run what was called in those days the casualty department and to put some kind of order because the casualty departments were the sort of, I suppose, they were the legacy of the, the, the monasteries, the almshouses, the, the infirmaries of the, of, the, of the Middle Ages and the, and the 18th century. Uh, but what used to happen, you know, in places, cities like Britain, like, like Cork and Dublin and London and Edinburgh, was that the back gates would be opened every morning and a crowd of the indigent, the poor, would, 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 would pile in and the gentlemen physicians and the gentlemen surgeons would spend, you know, about an hour looking at uh, as many of them as you could poss- possibly see. And I remember reading in the British Medical Journal, or perhaps The Lancet, how the, the average consultation lasted about 90 seconds. And, I mean, there were some diagnosticians, that's all I can say, suggest um, but that was the only free uh, healthcare back yeah. in back in the day but but gradually it became obvious to the politicians and to people in, in general that there needed to be, to be some sort of system whereby people could come urgently to the hospital not worry about the finances uh, and be seen uh, when, when clinically needed and that was the origins and uh, you know our forebears as I say were, were, were people who had spent their time dealing in war zones uh, and in, in you know in, in mission hospitals and that seems entirely appropriate it's a place where you do the most for the most with the least resources mm. and it, it tends to be a, 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 a ultimately a matter of crowd control as we heard this morning PJ on your news about our that's currently right. uh, congested emergency department in the city that's right and <coughs> per- almost permanently congested I think is, is fair to say from, from the time that you came to Cork and took on and uh, when, I, when I were you mad Chris three hospitals yes. one contract one man were you mad or were the people who wrote that contract up, were they mad? Well, that, that's a very, very interesting uh, discussion. The thing is, uh, PJ, I was desperate to go back to Ireland. I and I, I, was, uh, I was away for 14 years in what I described as medical exile. But, you know, there was only one or two or three jobs advertised in the whole of the Republic in those 14 odd years. And, uh, you know, one of the jobs was in Castlebar, to which I had absolutely no connection. Uh, and the, 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 the job that came up in CUH and, and the Mercy and the South Infirmary in, in 1998, 1999, was literally the only job that made sense to me because I'd been a consultant for seven or eight years in the Royal Liverpool, which was arguably the biggest A&E department in the UK and possibly Europe at that time. Uh, and I, 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 you know, I, I was doing well. I mean, I was doing very, very well. We had a lot of things going on. We had a two-story building with 100 nurses. We had 30-odd doctors. We regularly have six to ten ambulances outside. And we were, you know, an evolving trauma centre uh, and so forth. So we were, we were doing a lot. And we had, of course, we had a, a 20-bedded ward for overnight stay. So it was a huge department doing really interesting, you know, innovative things in terms of the, the crowd control I'm talking about. But also things like fixing asthma, fixing collapsed lungs, expediting the care of the heart, heart attack patients, cardiac arrest and so forth forth. So very exciting and I'd been making very good progress but the, the truth was I was desperate to get home. I was about 40 at the time and I'd kind of resolved that if my oldest daughter Kira, uh, had reached the end age of 10 that it simply wouldn't be fair to extract her from her, her school uh, in Liverpool uh, and to extract my wife who of course is Scottish mm. uh, and uh, t- t- you know at that stage. So the, the chance came and you know as they say you have to take the 
opportunity of a lifetime within the lifetime of the opportunity. So I, I went for it, and I, I I know and I've loved Cork for for many many years because yeah. I've been coming to Cork since I was a it's, you know you know very very small, particularly to West Cork, which was this, and coming to the jazz festival as a med student in the seventies. So it's it, it was a part of the country that I loved, and it, it 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 made some sort of sense. Although I have to say I was I was very anxious about the three hospital business of spinning yeah. around three. To be absolutely honest with you, three dilapidated emergency yeah. departments, uh, which were all, you know, needing needing new systems. I mean, my, my colleague, my predecessor, my only colleague at the time, Stephen Cusack, had done the best he could. Yeah. But, you know, the, the truth was that uh, when I left Liverpool, there were departments in the UK and Australia which already had 10 or 12 consultants. Yeah. So we had here, we had two consultants for the entire city and, of course, the county because we kept an eye on Mallow and Bantry and, yes, and, right. and so forth. Plus, we kept an eye on the, on the ambulances and we had all the politics to do with we had to negotiate resources and of course within a year or two I was also appointed director of postgraduate medical education at CUH where I, I ran the grand rounds for quite a while and I was intern tutor and so on so there's a lot going on there I get tired even listening to you talk <laughs> about that time yes I, I, I guess it, it do, do you think bad. that the burnout that you talk about and we will talk about do you think that the burnout started then no it began a little bit before that um PJ, because I, I, you know, as I said, we, we people talk about the trolleys. We had trolleys in Liverpool in the early nineties. You know, we had a dozen ambulances queued up outside, just as they are now, all around these islands, queuing up to decant their patients, um, and people actually waiting in ambulances until the nurses in the emergency department were ready to take them in, because the nurses decided twenty five years ago and more recently that it was safer in the back of an ambulance for an elderly party to be with a paramedic or two in the back of their ambulance with all its kit than to be sitting in a, on a corridor, uh, you know, on a small chair, lost in in, in the throng of, of people and, and uh, frightened and, and distressed and all of that, but also genuinely diagnostically wrong because it's very easy to miss yeah. a stoically but very sick patient in distress who's distressed, who's too polite to ask for help as opposed to perhaps the more irate, yeah. uh, intoxicated and patient beside A keen-eyed paramedic can spot that. Exactly, and has the kit and the experience and the training to deal with the crisis mm. in the back of the ambulance. You have huge respect for paramedics and nurses at every grade, Chris. Every yeah. time you get the opportunity to talk about that respect. Yes, they are the infantry, they are the troops, they are the NCOs, they are increasingly the officers in the health service army and <clears throat> you know I, I never hesitate to suggest that when people are talking about fixing in commas the mm. emergency department problem that paramount amongst you know we need more doctors but we need more senior expert nurses and they are, they are called advanced nurse practitioners and we need advanced uh, paramedics because these people are basically doctorate level they've done masters very often they have huge experience they've they've lived in the real world and they've treated many many patients which is ultimately what people want they want expertise and experience uh, and you know for example we have advanced nurse practitioners <coughs> in the mercy in CUH and in the Urgent Care Centre in Grona Broher and the work they do is absolutely astonishing it's wonderful and people you, you when you hear about the excellent work done for example in Grona Broher you hear it all the time that people with relatively minor injury go to Grona Broher have a great experience mm-hmm. almost a shockingly uh, impressive and, and welcome experience very often that's, de- that's delivered to them by a registrar which is the sort of lieutenant captain level in the doctors or an advanced nurse practitioner and of course the same applies to CUH uh, and the Mercy mm-hmm. where people 
like Joe White, Sonia, uh, Anne, Anne uh, 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 and Sheila do such wonderful work. And, and your, your, your two friends, Jason and Adrian, and the work they're able to do at the side of the road, you've written about it yourself. Yeah. Like, and and he, here's a remarkable thing, uh, PJ. Despite all, despite the fact that we have this uh, infamous overcrowding in our emergency departments, Cork has become one of the beacons of progress of sophistication, of systems planning and deployment in these islands and around the world. We have some of the best pre-hospital care now in these islands, courtesy of pioneers like Jason van der Velt, uh, you know, uh, Hugh uh, in, um, in in Middleton, uh, Connor DC, uh, Adrian uh, and, and, and Joe O'Connor before him. So for, for the last... 15 odd years, 20 years, you know, starting obviously in Middleton uh, with Hugh, uh, you know, we have, uh, we've been developing pre-hospital care and now you have medics going around in these in- mobile intensive care unit type uh, f- vehicles that you see, for example, the West Cork Rescue, the West Cork Rescue or the East Cork mm. Rescue uh, vehicles uh, and you have, uh, you have paramedics in backing them up. So the thing is, I remember about 15, 20 years ago, people were anxious about becoming ill in Yall or Skull or Bantry because of access getting to the big hospital and anxiety about Bantry's provision. But here's the thing. The the provision of basic uh, uh, medical care in the hospital of Bantry is infinitely better than it was. But now you can be on the the, 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 the pier in Ca- at Ca- Castle Townsend or Castletown Bear or Yall uh, or Ballycotton and if you have a cardiac arrest or if you have a, a, a severe accident or you fall down and you're off the pier and you, you hurt yourself... You know, people like Hugh uh, and Jason can be with you uh, within 10, 15, 20 minutes in addition to the paramedic and you can have extraordinarily advanced life-saving care there and then at, mm. at the periphery of the county and, and beyond. So and that's that, a remarkable progress despite the overcrowding we yeah, keep hearing about. And, and that is, you've always talked about the positive and talking up the positive because there's so much of it there in among the overcrowding, in among the, the difficulties of overcrowding and maybe you have an idea how we solve that. I'll come back to it. But I want to talk about about burnout, Chris, because first of all, you suffered from it uh, badly, very badly. I would suggest both mentally and physically. But also... Um, we have a massive shortage of consultants and a massive shortage of doctors and nurses at all grades. Are we looked on, is Ireland looked on as something of a of a burnout black spot? I suspect that it is, PJ. Um, but, you know, I also worry about a, a, a phrase, an idea that I've coined myself, again, slightly ironically, because without, without black humour, we're, 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 mm. we're stuffed. But, you know, I talk, I talk about a thing called pre-traumatic stress reaction. Yeah. In other words, we have so many doctors leaving the service, leaving the island, or not returning to the public service because they anticipate burnout so intensely. And you know, I'd point out that there are a lot of doctors and nurses who are not so burnt out. You know, and like everything in life, there is a spectrum. There is a continuum within the health service from, say, the community, the district nursing, uh, right through to the intensive care, pre-hospital, you know, war zone type type scenario. And every kind of situation in between. And one of the great things about medicine is that there are dozens of specialties. Mm. Uh, into which you can find yourself fitting very, very nicely. Now, it may take a few years before you recognise what specialty is for you. 
You know, you may be a laboratory type person. You may be a researcher in the labor, uh, you know, in the university. You may be an, a, an excitement junkie, like like a, many an emergency physician, or you may be somebody who likes the the the, the, the neat and tidy regularity of the operating theatre or or the wards. So there's a place, a niche for for everybody. And I think it's the mismatch between you, your personality, your 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 attributes and aptitudes, and where you find yourself ending up that I think is at the root of of, of burnout. And remember. Burnout is an occupational disease or a dis-ease, as I, as, I, as I like to call it. You know, you know, to break down the words, dis-ease. You know, you're you're not you're at you're not at you're not comfortable. And the thing is, I'm and I'm and I'm giving a talk in Galway uh, n- next week at a, at a conference, and it's about pleasure and why medics need to keep a, a very close eye on pleasure because for me the red flag that uh, that tells you you're a at grave risk of burnout is when you stop having pleasure in all the things which gave you pleasure before. Mm. So when you no longer w- enjoy watching the Reds or the Whites uh, or, or playing football, when you no longer enjoy going to the pub to have a, a few pints with the lads, when you no longer enjoy the golf or the tennis or the cycling trip on a Sunday morning, when you no longer enjoy the company of colleagues or most, most importantly and severely and seriously, when you no longer enjoy the reinsurances and the sheer pleasure of being met at the door by your own kids and your dog and, of course, above all, your wife. And when you're endlessly, you know, uh, moaning to yourself, most of all, about how you're not enjoying life, that's a real red flag. And that, to me, means take stock. Maybe take time out, but take stock. And that happened to me in the late 90s when I was dealing with a... Myself and Una Geary, one of the, the great emergency physicians in Ireland who, who trained with me in Liverpool and is now back at St. James's. But she and I dealt with 48 shootings in, 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 a, in a hurry in Liverpool. So, you know, the Kinahan Hutch thing. Mm. We had that, uh, the, the Ungi Fitzgibbon Phillips uh, feud in, in Liverpool where we had... We dealt with 48 shootings and very often the, the people would be dumped at the door of the emergency department without any warning or they'd be shot in a pub or whatever. And you just pick up, pick them up accidentally in the emergency department or in, in, in the triage at the door of the emergency department and, and so on. And they usually arrived without warning. So, you know, when a shooting arrives, the, the, the department is suddenly, you know, you have a swarm of armed SWAT team uh, police you have snipers on the pub roof opposite the hospital uh, you have the doors of the of the recess room uh, barricaded and locked and, and securely guarded because you may have the gang members trying to get into the recess room where you're working on the on the latest shooting victim uh, everything else has to stop even if there's a, a, a trolleys as far as the eye can see full of elderly distressed people cardiac or also everything has to stop for the, for the shooting victim so we had so much of that plus of course all the usual stuff in, in a city which was f- tormenting by poverty uh, and and deprivation and and so on in, in the early nineties. I mean, th- thankfully, Liverpool is a wonderful, bustling, prosperous city mm. now. But back then, it was on its uppers. You know, the early nineties yeah. and so on. So you know, the burnout was creeping up. Then I was working every second. You know, er, you know, I was working eighty, ninety, hundred hours a week, even at the age of, of you know, my late thirties, and I was trying to rear a kid, and I, I rear children, and and you know, and I, I wasn't earning very much. So I was cycling to work and getting the bus yeah. and so on. Probably not sleeping. Not very sleeping. Well, called in at all. two in the morning morning, three in the morning, yeah. five in the morning, and so on. So it, 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 that's certainly when the burnout was beginning. There's a, there's a survey has come out 
reading it this morning, says about half of all the UK hospital doctors and nurses that they surveyed have had near accidents or experienced near misses while driving home. Like, in the career that you had and the way that it developed, I'd say getting enough sleep. When you look back on it now, Chris, you had you weren't getting enough sleep for years. Correct. And, um, or enough decent sleep when you got sleep. Yes, and uh, of course it's only recently that we're realising that a lack of sleep is hello, carcinogenic. You know, who knew? It's not It's not just very bad for your circadian rhythm. It's not just very bad for stress. It's not just very bad for making you cantankerous and crabby and anxious, you know, the, the morning after a, a disturbed night's sleep, you know, and you, that you take that into work with you, although you try not to, uh, or you, you take it uh, into your family life on, on, a, on your occasional day off. So yes, uh, sleep deprivation sadly is, is a feature uh, of, of, of life as a, an emergency physician or an anaesthetist or a surgeon or a radiologist and that's one of the reasons why I think that there is a natural trajectory I think in medicine and nursing, at least I think there should be, where younger people do more nights and more f- f- patient facing stuff, you know, that the exciting stuff and as you get older perhaps after the age of 55 that you stop doing nights. I think that's something to greatly to be desired, uh, both in, uh, having experienced that and also medically. I think, you know, the chronic sleep deprivation and deep sleep disturbance is much harder to ac- accommodate when you're in your mid to late 50s. Ooh. And it's something that they already practice in the UK. They, you know, people who are older than 55 don't do yeah. so-called on-call and they do sort of slightly less intense things. And I think that makes eminent sense. And you know what? I'm absolutely convinced that it would keep more older doctors in. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would have kept working... For Forever, if they had been able to calibrate, down calibrate the intensity of my work, I offered to work, you know, as an ambulatory doctor, as a, as a ward doctor, as a clinic doctor, all those many other things that the emergency department does. But the system simply didn't have the wherewithal to yeah. give me that that particular type of job. Is it possible? Because from as long ago as myself, the time when I might have wanted to be a doctor many years ago, and people are still going into it now. When you qualify, you're going into this maelstrom where sleep is as precious as the next wage or the next meal. And it's for how long? Is there a way to restructure the profession, Chris, that that doesn't happen? That we actually get a a proper working week for young graduating doctors? Because they can get it in Australia, can't they? Yes, there, of course there is, uh, PJ. Uh, you know, here, here's the thing. In the 40 years since I qualified, uh, medicine, the, the, uh, the capacity of medicine to cure, fix and alleviate, above all, to, uh, to relieve distress is infinitely greater than it, than it used to be uh, in, in the early 80s. And I'm very proud of the progress that my generation uh, contributed to. Uh, I, I, medicine, I'm still absolutely fascinated and deeply in love with, with medicine. It's a magnificent career. It's a magnificent uh, aspect of, 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 of human life and, and being human. And I've said this to politicians discreetly in the past. The most senior politicians you can imagine, I said, the one point of most pathology in the health service in this country and in the UK is in the human resource management uh, point in the chain. We need to maybe have a summit. We need to maybe have a people's a citizens assembly even to look at the way we treat our doctors and nurses and paramedics and ancillary professions and see what can be done to accommodate, for example, the science of sleep. We now know that the circadian rhythm cannot be circumvented. We now know that if you constantly pretend to yourself that your body clock says 
sleep, it's dark, sleep. And if we keep ignoring that, that we are, you know, we are stocking up terrible problems for our health and our mental health, mm. particularly uh, for, in, in, for, for, for the years to come. And catnapping in a sluice room is not the solution, not, it never was. No, it, it, it may help a tiny bit temporarily, but the truth is that we need to have a long look at the health and well-being of doctors and nurses over the entire course of their careers and see what it is that must be done to help. Mm. Chris, you never fell out of love with being a doctor, did you? No, no, I no. Still, I'm still very much in love and I'm still very proud and grateful, uh, PJ, to have become a doctor. I, 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 mean, I wrote recently, no one was more surprised than myself, to paraphrase Flann O'Brien, than myself as the young Dr. Luke in 1982. I was astonished because I was... I was a chancer, I was a, a messer. I, I you mean, enjoyed I, I enjoyed life. I mean, I was a terrible messer. I mean, my, my daughter is convinced, my, I have three daughters, and number two is my, is, my, is my kind of ideas guru. She's convinced that I have ADHD, you know. <laughs> and it may be that that's what explained my, my, my love of medicine, the, the emergency medicine, the ever-changing diversity and quick change and so on, the sort of cinema uh, mm-hmm. effect that you have when you're in it. But, you know, on the other hand, I, I started life in an orphanage, I had terrible insecurity in terms of separation anxiety and my mother wasn't around an You're awful lot. You're very hard on yourself. Yeah, but you know, uh, I, I, I think my, my, the, the greatest blessing I had was I, I, I craved affection and love. And I think I appreciate affection and love and kindness as much as anybody and I turned that upside down to try and deploy affection and kindness and, and love towards my patients. And the only achievement that I would like to be remembered for is having been affectionate and perhaps kind and done my be- best to make people feel better when they left an emergency department, either in either direction, going in or out. And I always say that the metric of a good consultation is when the patient comes in grimacing, pale, distressed and leaves pink-faced, smiling and grateful. They, those are the basic, simple, perennial metrics of a really good consultation. And happiness, as I say, is the absence of pain. And if you can do your bit to relieve pain, whether it's spiritual or physical or mental, you've done what you're supposed to be doing. One last one, Chris. Um, and after 40 years as a doctor and in your early 60s now and I think your daughter's gone into the profession and you've four kids and you're settled and you live here in Cork you seem to me to be a happy man who are your heroes Chris Luke? Oh god that's a difficult one that really is difficult my medical heroes would be Sister Lucy O'Brien the famous missionary surgeon in Monsey in South Zambia who inspired me uh, that an enormous amount could be done with relatively little resources. There, I saw ecological medicine in practice there. You know, the surgical dra- uh, th- drapes <clears throat> spread over the, 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 the hedgerows outside the hospital to be irradiated and sterilised by the sunlight. I saw latex gloves being used and reused and reused. The parsimony, the, the, the frugality. Um, 
Professor Niall O'Higgins, who was a, a surgeon who took an interest in me and took a shine to me when I was a medical student in Vincent's and we had some adventures together and he came after me when I was a consultant and put, laid the hand on me and got me to do all sorts of, you know, uh, 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 tasks and jobs and favours and many a poison chalice, but I'm incredibly grateful to him and he spoke in my, the launch of my book in the Royal College of Physicians. He wonderfully wrote a poem. Um, people like George Angus uh, Lee, in, in the surgeon, the county surgeon in, in, in Wexford, Anthony Clare, the, 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 the psychiatrist who I admired hugely as both a media man and as a psychiatrist who I saw mm. occasionally in, in, in the throes of my, my burnout. There, there are so many, you know, Lawrence Jaffe, <laughs> the four Beatles, you know, you name <laughs> it. But, but above all, my, my mother. Yeah. Um, and I know she, uh, she passed away only a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, a single woman, unmarried, gave birth to me at the age of 40 in the, 90, in the end of the 1950s, which was no mean feat in deeply Catholic Ireland, uh, and was an extraordinarily resourceful woman, extraordinarily bright. She didn't go to college, but if she had, I'm certain she would have been professorial or president. She was a remarkable woman, and her influence continues in her, in her children, in her, in her son and in her grandchildren, and I owe her a remarkable... As I do... And I mustn't forget this to my wonderful wife, Victoria. Chris, for the thousands of families that uh, have members alive and well and healthy because of your intervention and because of those two hands that you're given, thank you for what you've done. Thank you, PJ. It's been an honour. Corks 96 FM. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.